by the name of C. Roy Angle related this story. It had to do with a friend of his in college whose first name was Paul. The story was set back in the 1950s, I believe. Paul received a gift for Christmas that year, a new automobile. It was given to him by his brother. He was quite happy about the gift, obviously. As he exited his office one particular day, made his way to his new automobile, he found a young man who just basically wandered the street, standing there, looking at the automobile, walking around it. He looked up and he said, is this your car, mister? Paul nodded and said, my brother gave it to me for Christmas. The boy looked astounded. He said, you mean your brother gave it to you and it didn't cost you nothing? Paul nodded. Yeah, my brother gave it to me for Christmas. The boy again looked amazed. Then he said, I wish, but he hesitated. At that moment, Paul said, I, I knew what he was going to say. I wish I had a brother like that. But Paul was taken back by what actually came out of his mouth. After a brief pause, he said, I wish I could be a brother like that. Paul invited him to take a ride. So they went around a block a time or two, and the boy said, could, could you go to my, my apartment where I live? And he said, sure, I'll be glad to drop you off. And so they drove to the appointed place. The youngster got out and said, could you wait here for a moment? Paul said, sure. A few moments later, he came carrying a small lad out who could not walk. He sat him down on the front steps. And he said, his brother gave him that. It didn't cost him a cent. And one day, I'm going to give you a car like that. All giving should be the result of such intense desire, the desire to give. The desire to meet someone's needs or to make a difference in someone's life. Dynamic, need-centered giving involves putting God's will and the needs of others before your own desires. Doing so means that you'll be a beacon in this me-first world in which we live. Our giving is an extremely important part of our spiritual lives. Now, last week, Pastor Dave gave us the options that we have in the realm of giving. And uh, such a great reminder of our two treasures 
the two possible perspectives we should have and the two masters that we can choose to serve. But let's go back to 2 Corinthians and pick up where we left off at verse 11. And I'm going to continue to talk about the characteristics of grace giving and add to those we've already talked about. And again, I want you to see this morning how important it is, how very important it is to be givers. It's such an important part of our lives. The first thing I want you to notice with me now as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning at verse 11, is this. Grace giving responds to need. It responds to a need. It responds to something that is practical. It responds to what will be helpful, what may be necessary in someone else's life. The motivation for such giving is internal. It's, it comes from inside of us as we respond to the plight or the situation that someone else is in. And so Paul says to the Corinthian church, but now finish the doing also. And again, what he's saying is, you promised to make this gift, to collect this offering for the needy Christians in Jerusalem. But they had ceased. They didn't carry it out. And it kind of went astray, been led astray. But Paul is saying you have another opportunity. And now you've come to that point. And so he says, but now finish the doing also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may also, there may be also the completion of it by your ability. For if, since the, for if the readiness is present, it is acceptable to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. I want to draw your attention to two words in this in these two verses here, where he says, there was a readiness to desire it. And then later on where he says, there was a readiness that is present in your life. Paul sensed it. Paul understood it. They had now an internal motivation to complete this giving. The two words that you see translated readiness probably could be better translated by the word willingness. They were willing to do this. It was an internal motivation that possessed them. That should always be present when we give. The extent of what's given, however, is proportionate as we see in the latter verse. For if since the readiness is present, it is acceptable what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Remember from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, the last time we, we talked, we talked about that wonderful privilege God has given to us to determine the amount that we give. We are to give, and the, and the only direction he gives us is to give as God has prospered us. That is for us to determine individually. And we have to draw that line between what we keep and what we give. And we should do so wisely. And then he adds this. 
in verses 13 and 14. But by way of equality, he says, at this present time, your abundance being a supply for their needs, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need. That there be equality. Paul explains, it's not that God wants to afflict you or burden you by what you give for the benefit of someone else. It's broader than that. God wants there to be an equity between those who need those that are in need, and those that have the ability to meet that need. And your ability to participate in such an equation is dependent on what you have, not what you do not have. Sometimes I think we feel a little guilty because we don't give as much as we think we should, or maybe not as much as maybe somebody else does. But this equality that Paul was talking about is important for us to understand. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 32 and around about in that context, you remember the story in the early days of the church, uh, there were those that were impoverished and those that had financial means. And many, like Barnabas for one, sold property, lands, houses, and came and brought the money and deposited it at the apostles' feet. And the apostles then distributed that to those in need. Many have suggested over the years that this was a form of communism or socialism in the early church. It absolutely was not. What Paul means here by equality is not equivalent to socialism. Socialism means the government makes you give. The government takes from you for the purpose of giving to whomever they want to give it to for whatever purpose they have in mind. Unfortunately, many times it's a self-serving purpose. All the giving that took place in the church in Jerusalem back in Acts 4 was voluntary. It was coming from an internal motivation. They had a passion to help. They saw the need, and they wanted to be a part of relieving that need. That comes from God. That comes from that internal passion that God puts in your heart, that love for your brethren. Now, later on, Paul faced an opposite problem, I guess, or some similarities over in the book of uh, 2 Thessalonians. He talks about those in the Thessalonian church that quit working, whatever their reason or excuse was, probably that they thought the Lord was coming back soon, they didn't have to work. They then became busybodies and they were going around to various other people in the church and basically sponging off of them. And Paul made that proclamation we're all aware of where he said, look, here's my judgment on the matter. Those who do not work shall not eat. So this is not by any stretch of the imagination here what Paul was talking about when he says equality. It's not sharing 
because you're made to, or it's not sharing that is brought about because somebody will not meet their own needs. So the purpose here is need-centered, as we see in verse 14. At this present time, he says, your abundance being a supply for their needs so that their abundance may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. Well, what does he mean by that? Does he mean that maybe later on the people in, in, in Jerusalem will have much and the people in Corinth will have little and they will reciprocate? Well, obviously that's something that could happen. But by the way, let's stop here and remember this, this contribution they were making. This collection they were taking to the needy in Jerusalem was based on Scripture, such as we find in 1 John three sixteen, where it says, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? So Paul could not, Paul could not overlook the needs in Jerusalem when he is teaching how we should love our brethren when he establishes these churches. They need to act upon it. It may seem kind of heavy-handed or uh, dictatorial that Paul was telling them what to do. Paul was giving them an opportunity and telling them what they needed to do uh, and how they should take advantage of this opportunity, but it was based on solid scriptural grounds. And the purpose is need-centered. Now, It might be your neighbor that's in need and they don't go to your church. It might be somebody in your community. It might be somebody that's devastated by a hurricane or flooding or who knows what. Those kinds of needs are easy to see and they are powerful in producing that internal motivation that brings about giving. But I think something we forget about oftentimes is when we give to our church, we need to remember that too is need-centered giving. Any church, pretty much any church, I, I remember my first church did not have a budget when I took that church. I tried to figure out what they were doing with what they collected and where it was going. And, well, well, we just pay our bills. Well, it was a small church. And uh, finally got them to do a budget. But that budget, I, I had to explain to them that the budget tells us this is what we should spend our money on. This is what is needed. A giving plan, a budget, whatever you want to call it, it it's need-centered. It's not about building a big bank account or enriching somebody along the way. We sometimes forget that spiritual needs are right up there with physical needs. And the communication, the preaching, the teaching of the Word of God, the worship of God requires facilities. It requires uh, support for pastors. It requires, even somewhat similar to what Paul was doing here, it requires giving outside of the congregation to missionaries. Or maybe others, uh, in other believers in certain situations. And yes, the individual can give outside of the realm of the church. The church can do the same. But the church itself 
is a need-centered, non-profit work of God. And I, I just always like to think of that that way. When I come into these nice facilities you have and look around, I'm thinking God has blessed because people saw the need to have a place where people could come and worship and learn from God's Word and have their lives changed. Now let's move on to verse 15. Paul adds this. He says, as it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. Now, that goes back to the book of Exodus, chapter 16, and the manna God supplied in the wilderness to the children of Israel. And some had the ability to go out and gather up a lot. Others may not have had the capacity, the size of their family, or their physical health to go out and gather up near as much. And when he says, the ones who gathered much had you know, help the others, and the ones who gathered little had no lack. He's talking about sharing, voluntary sharing again, need-centered sharing. And he's just using an Old Testament uh, verse here to put a stamp on what he's saying, a uh, proof text, if you will. The result of all this we find in verses 16 and 17, where he says, but be thanks to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. Now, Titus, one of Paul's associates, one of his fellow workers, coming to Corinth to motivate them to complete what they had promised. To do what they said they would do. To encourage them, to, uh, to exhort them. And Paul uses the word translated earnest two times in these two verses. First in verse 16 where it says, but, but thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the, heart of, in the heart of Titus. Now the word earnestness I think could probably better be understood here by the simple term diligence. He put the same diligence in the heart of Titus that he's now beginning to put back in your heart as you let him do that. The, the, diligence means the, the commitment to do what's necessary. In this case, to complete the task, to fulfill the promise. And then later on, Paul says in verse 17, but being himself very earnest, this is a little different word which adds emphasis. He was so earnest that he is going of his own accord to get you to be earnest, to be diligent. So giving is need-centered. It's important. It's, its value requires such diligence. So let's move on now. We've talked about grace giving is need-centered. That's important. We need to keep that in mind. But secondly, God requires oversight. Grace giving should involve oversight. Now, sometimes we read a passage like this and we just think, well, that's just what that's just what happened in Corinth. This is just how they went about the collection. This is just how they did things. But this is inspired scripture put there for a reason. And that reason seems to me to be very obvious. And that is this, that God expects 
that when someone gives to a church, that that money be taken care of, that that, that resource be managed effectively, and that good stewardship be in place. So let's look at this. He says in verse 17, For he not only accepted our appeal, that is Titus, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. So first of all, Titus now is going to act as an overseer in regard to what takes place with this offering in Corinth. And he does so willingly. Those who are overseers, and I'm using that term as, you know, obviously that's a a term for, another term for elder or pastor in the New Testament. But I'm using it more in the sense of whoever it may be in the church, ultimately that would be the elders. Whoever may be involved in the stewardship of what is collected. And it takes someone willing to do that. It takes time and it takes a lot of, uh, well, you know what it's like to pay your bills and keep up with your budget and all that, right? Okay, so we have willing overseers, but you also see here that there were multiple overseers. Just like in the structure of the church, you have multiple elders, In the management and the stewardship of the church's funds, there need to be multiple managers, overseers. I use that term rather than elder because Titus was outside the church of Corinth. Uh, Things were a little bit different when you have an apostle that's uh, directing you and uh, versus a church making their own decisions. There were multiple overseers in uh, verse 18 and 19. We see this. We have sent along with him Titus. Excuse me. I put Titus in there for my own sake. Remember, that's not in the text. We have sent along with him the brother. Well, the, the with him here is Titus again, a reference to him, who he's already identified. We have sent along with him the brother, the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. And not only this, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work. By the way, remember last time I was here, and I think uh, even before Pastor Dave referenced this fact, that giving starts with God's grace poured out on us, and we just pass that along. So he, it re- literally says in the original, the grace, translated this gracious work here. To travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness. So we have two individuals here. We have Titus and we have this other brother, an unnamed brother that was part of the oversight group. He gives in verses 20 and 21, a little more information. It says, taking precaution so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And then moving on to verses 22 and 23. We have sent with them. Now, okay, we got Titus and the other brother, whose fame in the things of the gospel was, had been spread about, Titus and the brother. But now down in verse 22, we have a third person. We have sent with them our brother, 
whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great influence in you. As for Titus, moving back to him again, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ. I noticed, especially in this third individual, not only were the overseers of this collection and the administration of it, not only were they willing and earnest about doing it, not only were they multiple, there were three men involved, but at least in terms of this last one, as mentioned specifically, he had been tested. I don't think that means the other two had not. He just references it here. Uh, given responsibility and having then completed responsibilities, been faithful, been wise, been a good steward, he's qualified to do this work. It should always be the case with anyone serving in an important position. Tested. Now, this brings us back then to us. Obviously, there should be multiple oversight in regards to money that is collected and how it is distributed, administrated, and so on. But we also bear a responsibility to be discerning. We want to make sure we give our money to people who will be good stewards of it and put it toward the work that God wants to be done and not put it in their own pockets or not spend it frivolously or, or whatever. So we have a responsibility. Around about know, a week or two before Christmas, I was going to Walmart, going in the door, and there was a small group of people there set up the tables, and they were selling some things, I think. <clears throat> and I noticed they were Christian things, like cross, at least the symbolism on the crosses or different things. I don't remember all what it was. And I was kind of, kind of surprised to see that and, and kind of pleased to see that. And my first thought was, well, maybe I should buy one of those things. My second thought was, maybe I shouldn't. But I don't know who these people are. I don't know whether they're Christians or not. Maybe they just know how to get Christians to give them money. Now, that may sound a little harsh. And to tell you the truth, I did feel a little guilty about having that thought. Now, if anybody of you know this group and they're legit, don't tell me because then I'll really feel guilty about it. <laughs> but I have a responsibility to give what the Lord has put upon my heart to give in ways that I know will bring about the Lord's work, His will, His purposes. You know, I don't see a lot of people begging around Conroe. I was very pleased because around Raleigh, North Carolina, where I came, it's every corner, you know? And Maybe there's some of those people that are needy. I, I, I don't know. And they have these signs, these crude signs that says, you know, the kids are hungry. I got four kids at home. You know. And I don't think it's, 
a bad thing to hand them out a you know a bag of potato chips or whatever you have but i i never handed them i never handed them money and i i always kind of felt guilty about that too but but my my discernment said you know i have a responsibility what i do i have a stewardship I remember one day I went by one such individual on the way to Lowe's, and by the time I got out of Lowe's, he was coming in the door buying some expensive and was carrying out some expensive items. So I, I don't know. He wasn't spending it on food. That's all I know. Even parachurch organizations you need to be very careful. There are websites that will tell you <clears throat> what various missions agencies and religious uh, nonprofits do with their money. Uh, they will even tell you how much of what they collect actually goes to meet a need and how much of it goes to raise funds, for example. That's important to know who you want to uh, give to that group or not. So oversight is important. A part of oversight is personal. A part of oversight is organizational in the church. It is, it's church-wide. But one thing's for sure, when you, when you put money into a receptacle or you put it online through MasterCard, whatever you do, when you give to Conroe Bible Church, you should have a confidence. You don't have to worry about, you know, is that going to be money spent on legitimate needs? That should be the case in every church. Let's move on to the third principle. Giving reflects love. So far we've talked about giving should be need-centered. <clears throat> giving requires oversight. The third thing is this. Giving reflects love. This is in verse 24. Therefore openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. Now, that just seems like a, well, I, Paul just tacked it on one more time. This is what you need to do. It is, an, it is a, a command. He's telling them to do it. But he's not, he's not just giving him one final, you know, gentle reminder. Because he, he, he delves into this proof of your love. That's the point. He says, therefore, openly before the churches show. Now, that's, that's present tense. Don't just show it once. Make sure you're always showing others, other churches, other believers, that you're bearing a testimony even to those that are not believers, the proof of your love. Not only your love for people in need, but your love for the Lord. It's the Lord who tells us we ought to be concerned about our brother. It's the Lord who said, love your neighbor as yourself. Giving, first of all and foremost, is worship. I know in our present way of talking, we refer to the part of the service where we sing as worship. But literally, all that we do on Sunday is worship. And part of that is giving. That's worship too. I had a man many years ago came to my church from another church across town and uh, very 
seemingly a very dedicated believer, but he was very upset about something that happened in the church that he came from. And I, I, he'd visited my church, so I went and visited, sat down, talked with him, and he began to tell me, and I don't remember the details, but I do remember this. He said, I wish I had back every dime I ever gave to that church. Now, being a very young pastor at that time in my 20s, I wasn't quite as bold as I've grown to be over the years, so I didn't really call him on that, but I walked away thinking, did he give that money to the Lord, or did he give it for some other reason? You see, it doesn't matter. Even if the church somehow fails, our giving is part of our worship, and we should never regret. I want you to see here in this last verse when he says, therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love. That's a plural. That's a plural pronoun. He's not talking to the individual. He's talking to the church at Corinth. He's telling the church at Corinth to prove their love across the spectrum of known Christianity that day, extending back to the original church in Jerusalem. Show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. That's another plural personal program, pronoun. Excuse me. Now, the reason I bring this up is because Jesus had something to say about giving publicly. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, some of the older translations uses the term alms. He's talking about our giving. And he was saying that the, the, the Jewish people in that day, they would make a big show of their giving. And so he says, don't blow a trumpet and don't call attention to yourself when you give. And he goes on to say, if, if you do that, you have already had your reward, that, that attention that you garnered. It is perfectly appropriate that we all give privately. We don't give publicly in the sense of, you know, other people need to know what we give. He's not talking about that here. He's talking to the church, showing through their deliverance of this offering to Jerusalem that they love God and they love their brethren in, in, in Jerusalem. Love, though, this is agape love. This is godlike love. This is sacrificial love here that he references. This is not brotherly love in the lighter sense of the word in the Greek, but the ultimate love. Show, show that kind of love. Demonstrate it. Complete what you promised to do. <clears throat> but it is true that even though we as individuals don't broadcast what we do or make a public show of what we do in the way of giving, that would not be appropriate. But still, by doing that, even in a private sense, we demonstrate love. And the individuals participated in what the church in Corinth did. Giving is always indicative of our love at some level. A lady by the name of Irene Wright 
told this story of apparently something that happened quite a number of years ago. She lived in New Orleans, and her pastor at that time, whom she doesn't name in this story, walked into a convenience store, and there was a family of three, a husband, a wife, and a small child, waiting to pay for their purchases, some food, some milk, and this and that. But they did not have the money. So the pastor took plenty of money out of his pocket, kind of reached around and handed it to the guy and said, don't look around, just take this and pay for it and go on. Don't make a deal out of it, you know. Didn't want to embarrass the man. So the man paid for it and left. But wasn't discovered till many years later when finally that pastor and that man met was that that man and his wife were out of work. They were out of their home. They were living out of their vehicle. And they were so depressed about it all, they had planned to take their own life that night. But before that pastor left that convenience store, and as he handed the man the money, he simply said, Jesus loves you. Well, they couldn't carry out their plans to take their life, which is what they had in mind. They were just buying one last little bit of food for the child. They finally, after several hours, got back in their car. They had driven to a remote place. They got back in their car, and they, they happened to drive by a church, and the sign said, Jesus loves you. They didn't immediately go in, but I think in, in time they went back to that church, and they both gave their lives to Christ, and later on met that pastor. And I don't think he was pastoring the church where they got saved, but somehow they got connected. It was a simple act of love in a moment of need that made a great impact and a great difference. God has given us the privilege to give, and not only to give, but to determine how we give, where we give, and how much we give. It's a great privilege. It's also a great responsibility. It's costly to give. If you've been a Christian for 20, 30, 40 years, and you've been a faithful member of your church, and you've supported the work of the Lord, you probably, hopefully you never really thought about it this way, but, you know, if you had all that money back that you had given, you'd be way better off. You could probably go out and buy that brand new car or boat or new house or whatever. You, it does cost something to give. But there's a return on your investment, too. As Paul said, the church in Corinth will help you. He, he, I don't think he really had in mind that suddenly Corinth was going to become impoverished and need a return offering. I think he was just simply indicating that the people in Corinth, their need was to give. The people in Jerusalem's need was to receive. It wasn't that the people in Corinth were not needy. They, had, they hadn't followed through on their obligations. They hadn't done what they should. Their need was to be faithful. Their need was to be obedient. Their need was to complete what they'd promised. That's what he's talking about. Sometimes that's hard because it does cost a little bit to give. C.S. Lewis wrote this many years ago. I think it's very powerful. 
He said, I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than you can spare. If our giving habits do not at all pinch us or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we want to do but cannot do because our giving expenditures exclude them. Yeah. When you make that decision, when you draw that line between what you give and what you keep, there's some things that you're going to give up, be it small or large. But it is the love that God placed into your heart. It is the love for the Lord Jesus that becomes our internal motivation, and it comes to fruition when we see a need. 